0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. In the space of a generation, we grow from an embryo the size of a grain of rice into an adult, an extraordinary feat of biology. But when you transform the timescale, the wonders continue. In a primordial sea, 600 million years ago, one cell split into two, and eventually it got to Australia, somehow picked up consciousness along the way, and the state of being aware of one's existence wonderfully and horribly, remains with us today. Why and how, exactly, we may never know. But we do have recent research and intelligent analysis from our God Forbid panel. Dr. Rachel Brown is Director of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. She's an expert on the relationship between evolution, consciousness, and cognitive science. Rachel Brown, welcome to God Forbid.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So you have won awards for your research into how life evolved from swamp blobs to complex consciousness. So why do you spend your time not in the science lab, but the library reading and writing philosophy?
0: Because I think that there's sort of no real hard and fast boundary between the projects that philosophers are interested in and the projects that scientists are interested in. We're interested in understanding our world and our place in it. So I have spent time in the lab, um, enjoyed that. But what I really enjoy doing is, is getting sort of information from lots of different sources and then seeing what that big picture is. So that's what I do.
1: How, how do they work together? Because in some people's minds, the two just don't relate, the philosophy and the science.
0: I can't really see them as anything but continuous. So... For philosophy, we're interested in ourselves, but also our place in the world and the way that the world works, and that's what scientists are interested in. Now, it's true that there's kind of grades of that, you know, sort of a very, very philosophical question about kind of, I don't know, say, what's what's fundamental to everything or something like that, or is there a God perhaps? But just in the same way, I guess some scientific research is extremely practical, focused on like say whether this bridge is going to hold up when a car's run over it, and my view is that there's kind of a middle ground there where philosophy and science sort of merge, um, and where we can be usefully engaged with each other to answer the very big questions that we're interested in.
1: Like is God on the bridge?
0: <laughs> True. I mean, <laughs> just think about, say, like the nature of intelligence. So this is something that philosophers have contributed a lot to the discussion of, but also scientists have. So cognitive science kind of comes from the integration of computer science, philosophy, biology, all of these areas working together to come up with an account of what intelligence is that reflects both the way the world is, but also what our concepts are and how we think of intelligence. So there are lots of sort of places where philosophy and biology just kind of naturally fit together.
1: Mm. Well, our second, God forbid, panellist will agree there's no hard and fast lines, not between the lab and the library, nor between the clinic and the clergyman. Andrew Sloan was working as a doctor until he threw it away to get a doctorate. Now, he is a medical doctor who is also a reverend and lecturer in Old Testament and Christian thought and director of postgraduate studies at Morling College. His most recent book is Vulnerability and Care, Christian Reflections on the Philosophy of Medicine. How many disciplines is that in one title? Andrew Sloan, welcome to God Forbid. Um, Hello. Good to be here. Why are you so fascinated by this
2: area of consciousness? I guess because the kinds of beings that we are, being persons and being in relationship with other persons is, um, is fundamental to being human. And consciousness, both its contribution and also its limitations in relation to those relationships, strikes me as profoundly important inherently and makes a difference to how we
1: treat others in the world. And Rachel, what's behind your interest in consciousness?
0: I really began being fascinated by it because I was interested in animal behaviour and it, it sort of ends up running into the question of consciousness quite often because we frequently think that the sorts of things that we do that are impressive like complex problem solving, arithmetic, Um, even navigation of our social worlds, like how we think about what others are thinking before we interact with them. Those things all have been related to consciousness. So if I'm going to be looking for those things in non-human animals, then I also need to be thinking about consciousness. And that's from an ethical standpoint. You know, Some 11 million organisms are used, say, for scientific purposes in the EU alone every year. Lots and lots of animals are eaten. And so all of these interactions look different if we start to Think about animals as conscious beings or or beings at least with some level of um, sort of phenomenal or what it is likeness to be them. And so in part, I think my motivation, so there was this kind of empirical motivation, but also this ethical motivation of trying to understand what it's like to be another animal and how that affects how I should interact with them.
1: On our end, it is, God forbid, we are looking at consciousness In the human and animal kingdoms, Dr. Rachel Brown, Director of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University, and Reverend Dr. Andrew Sloan, Director of Postgraduate Studies at Morling College. What is consciousness. It's hard to define, impossible to ignore. What could be more fundamental to our existence? The problem of consciousness and how we understand it has been thought about since pre-literate times. And today, the study of consciousness spans neuroscience to philosophy, psychology to religion. Professor David Chalmers is a philosopher at New York University, an honorary professor at the ANU. Here's what he had to say at a public forum on the nature of consciousness, moderated by RN's Lynn
3: Malcolm. Hey, What is... Consciousness, for me it's the subjective experience of the mind and the world. And the essential part is the the subjectivity, the way it's um, feeling like something from the inside. There's something it's like to be me as a conscious being. I presume there's something it's like to be you, and we can argue over whether there's something it's like, for example, to be a bee. If there is, then the bee is conscious. If there's not, then the bee is not conscious. People like to use metaphors to describe consciousness. There's any number of metaphors out there. William James and many others have talked about the stream of consciousness. Consciousness as a kind of a stream or a, a river. People have also talked about consciousness as a theater or as the stage on a theater, the part that's under the spotlight. The metaphors gradually get updated over time. Consciousness as an inner movie projected onto the, uh, the screen. Of consciousness, many people in the 20th century like to think about consciousness as a kind of a current data bank for a computer. But I've never actually heard anyone talking about the website of consciousness or the Facebook feed of consciousness. But uh, someone did say to me they thought their consciousness was rather like a Twitter feed. Maybe for kids these days it's the Snapchat of consciousness. I don't know. You know, there's any number of questions you can raise about consciousness. But for me, the big one has always been how can you explain it? Why does it? Exist And how can we give some kind of scientific theory of it? Absolutely, it's, it's got something to do with the brain. At least in humans, you need a brain to be conscious, and activity in the brain is going to lead to consciousness. Change the activity in the brain, and you'll typically change the state of consciousness. There's any number of correlations between the brain and consciousness, but nothing about that yet yields an explanation. So you know, for me, the hard problem of consciousness is how is it? that all this physical processing in the brain should somehow give rise to conscious experience? Why doesn't it all go on in the dark without any consciousness? Why aren't we just giant robots, or what philosophers sometimes call zombies, doing all this processing, behaving, walking, talking, but with the lights off inside, with nothing going on? I don't know, maybe that's how it is for some people, but I suspect not. Anyway, it's certainly not how it is for me. You know, for me, there's actually conscious experience here, and I suspect very strongly that for all of you, you're undergoing something like the same thing. But how can we explain that fact? How can we uh, give an account of that in terms of the physical processes of the brain?
1: How indeed, Professor David Chalmers, philosopher at New York University on All in the Mind with RNs Lynn Malcolm, we'll put a link to that full episode on the God Forbid website. So um, Dr. Rachel Brown, how is it possible that something we can touch, the mushy thing in our skull, the brain, can create something we can't touch, our consciousness? How does that happen?
0: Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think, I think it it's depends. more
1: expensive now with inflation, actually.
0: <laughs> I was going to say $64,000 question and then I upped it, but you're right. Maybe it should be $64 million question. Um, I guess, you know, for for most philosophers, you know, and in fact, uh, David Chalmers was one of the, was the philosopher that kind of coined it as being this, we call this kind of the hard problem. How do you get something that is subjective out of something which seems to be kind of objectively describable, like a brain? Um, and I don't, I think for me at least, the answer is we've just got to wait until science catches up with what we'd like to know. Um, I think that there will be some physical explanation for uh, our conscious experience, um, and it's just a matter of waiting for the science uh, to come through. So my answer is kind of uh, hold that thought, uh, wait, and then I can tell you the answer.
1: Reverend Dr. Andrew Sloan, Rachel's answered my million-dollar question by raising me with a billion-dollar one. Do you want to answer that one? Will science – will we find out the answer? I I don't actually know. Um, I suspect that – Oh, I've I've invited the wrong guy to the show. (laughs) Um,
2: Look, I – I think there's almost certainly going to be a whole bunch of interesting correlations between brain states and experiences of consciousness and the like. How much of that would function as explanatory I think is a different question. So there's a difference between relating phenomena and explaining one with another. I'll be hesitant to adopt any uh, strictly reductionist view. That is that consciousness can somehow be reduced to brain states. Now. That's a very live discussion Um, and there are a bunch of people who are working in the field but I would suspect that there are a whole bunch of things that uh, we think of as very important in consciousness and what consciousness is that science wouldn't be able to get quite the kind of purchase on that we think is important.
1: Mm, I wonder if that can be envisioned through the prism of bees, which is what Professor David Chalmers mentioned in his speech there. I only mention this because I know, Rachel, you've done work about this question of whether bees are conscious.
0: So actually colleagues of mine have done work on whether bees are conscious, but it is something that I've studied as well. Uh, I think the bee case, though, is very illustrative, perhaps of, of something that Andrew mentioned, which is whether we can kind of reduce consciousness to a set of reductive states or a neural kind of picture. And I think Andrew is right to be questioning whether, even if we could tell you, okay, that you've got this arrangement of neurons, hence your conscious, whether that would be the right level of explanation. I think there's good reason to think that it's actually this this level of beliefs and desires is a better level of explanation for our conscious experience. Um, And in the case of bees, what we can say is that bees have Whilst much smaller brains than us, they have brains which are far more complex than us in the sense that they're much more dense in their neurons. So they're smaller but more complex. And their brains appear to do the type of integrative work that our brains do when we're conscious. And so at least in terms of their brain structure, it looks like their brains could facilitate consciousness of some type. You can train bees in the dark to recognise rewarding shapes, so say a sphere versus a cube. So you train them, they recognise them by feel alone. You get a reward if you go to the the spheres rather than the, the cubes and then you can present them in the light with spheres and cubes that they can't touch, they can only see and they will prefer the one that you trained them on. So they've had no visual experience of the stimuli but they have somehow gone from the physical experience of the cube to some visual representation of what that cube must be like in order to make this kind of inference. And that looks like something which we would do by mental imagery. So you can imagine feeling a sphere in the dark, and then when the lights go on, you're able to recognize that thing in the room by what you've imagined and, it would be like.
1: And you are hypothesizing from this that perhaps a bee has what you called a Cartesian theater, which is this movie that we all live, the a idea that we're living a
0: story. Anab- of that? a very a simple, simple narrative version. Yeah. You'd want to say it was a very simple version of that. I don't think I don't think we have good evidence that they have something that is as what we would say is phenomenally rich as what we have. But this is relatively recent stuff. If those types of studies can be replicated and if we can show that they can do this in other types of modalities, then it starts to build up the idea that they have some kind of internal life. Now, what it's like to be a bee is a, you know, that's again a billion dollar question. But hmm. if we're asking whether they have some kind of what-it-is likeness, then it looks like we have reason to think they do have some internal life. They, they do have some kind of internal states that are analogous to ours.
1: This, Andrew Sloan, raises significant implications, both for you as a Christian and as a citizen. What on earth do you do if we suddenly have to give moral consideration for bees at a practical level, and what do you do as a Christian having to give moral consideration for bees when your faith instructs you that only humans are in the image of God? A
2: couple of things there. Um, Moral consideration
1: uh, isn't only tied to
2: beings that we might think of as selves. Um, So it seems to me, as a Christian, my moral framework, if we have this notion of God as creator, then God cares about the stuff that God has made. Uh, And that ought to be reflected in our attitudes towards them and our behaviours as well. Um, So I think that research is interesting, but it doesn't actually change hugely um, the question as to whether they deserve moral consideration.
1: With Rachel, and forgive me if I'm putting words into your mouth, Rachel, it appears the moral question hangs more on the presence or absence of consciousness in the animal rather than the presence or absence of uh, godly creation, which is your threshold.
0: Yes, that would be my view. I mean, I, I'm a, an atheist, so I, I don't think that there is any God. But for me, the morally relevant property for me is it, the, the big one is kind of the capacity for suffering. So if something has the capacity for suffering, then it's worthy of a certain level of moral consideration. And then in the case of bees, the question would be, well, are they capable of suffering? What's their suffering like? And then we have to ask questions about, uh, if we decide bees are worthy of moral consideration, then we also have to consider how much moral consideration, you know, is a bee suffering like human suffering, um, and driving in my car and I kill some bees. I, I wouldn't want to say that I was doing something equivalent to, to killing humans. Um, but, um, I might want to say that, um, You know, I shouldn't be sort of indiscriminately killing bees because I'm indiscriminately causing a very small amount of suffering. So I think, you know, for me, the question is, are they capable of suffering? How much suffering? What's that kind of suffering like? And then there's questions to do with the avoidability of that suffering. Um, But I don't think the bee suffering is equivalent to the human suffering for the reasons we already talked about, which is because I don't think that their internal uh, experience of the world is like our eternal experience. It's sort of on a scale with ours, but, you know, you might think the bees right up one end and we're right up another. For example, a bee, a bee wouldn't have a, a sense of like right or wrong. A bee, I think arguably doesn't have a sense of the importance of its life. There are lots of things about bees, which aside from their consciousness, which we take to be morally relevant
1: Um, Andrew Sloan, that moral wrestling from the scientist atheist Rachel Brown seems consistent with the best traditions of Christian thought.
2: I I would certainly agree that whenever we're thinking ethically, we need to consider particularly the avoiding of suffering, um, but also the providing of some benefit. I, I don't know whether Rachel would agree with this or not, but I would add some notion of intrinsic values is also worth considering, including the notion that things have value in and of themselves.
1: But Rachel, you don't believe there's a soul, so you don't believe there's that inherent preciousness, do you?
0: Yeah, that's true. I I don't think that there is any particular inherent preciousness, Um, but I do think that ultimately we probably end up making very similar judgments because of how we tend to think about inherent preciousness. For me, it comes back to questions to do with the suffering, and so – I can imagine a case where um, we could say uh, that there's something which we wouldn't traditionally have thought had um, inherent value, but because of the question of suffering, we ended up avoiding harm to that thing. Yeah.
1: Mm. On our end, it is God forbid. Stick around because up next I will prove to you a plant is conscious. (laughs) A plant is, in a sense, conscious. A vine, for example, is conscious of the sun. It grows toward it. But on a cloudy day, the vine demonstrates no sense of anger or resentment, at least as far as we know. So what or who? is conscious like us is it just us dr Christoph koch worked with the late francis crick the nobel prize winner for helping discover the structure of dna well he told rn's robin williams that before crick died they would often
4: discuss the idea of consciousness in non-human animals uh, all the time, yes, because he believed it's a phenomenon of biological organisms. And the question was, uh, how widespread is it across the animal kingdom or across biology? He was certainly of the opinion that all mammals are conscious, partly because the hardware is so similar. If you look at a little piece of grain or, of monkey or dog or cat or mouse or human brain, they all look alike. It's just different animals, including us, have more or less of it. We, of course, don't have the most. You know, elephants and blue whales have much more. And then the question arose with uh, Francis Crick, how low does it go? Ravens are very complex. Cephalopods are very, very complex. They can do imitation behavior. What about a fly? You know, the standard model system in vertebrate biology. What about a worm, C. elegans? So at some point, becomes, given our today's knowledge or lack of knowledge about consciousness, becomes very difficult to answer, at least from an empirical point of view, how low does consciousness go in the animal? And world? how low do you think it does? How certain are you, given the evidence? I think the most rational explanation, considering everything and inferring to the best of our abilities from the known facts, is that consciousness may in fact be a property of all complex biological creatures that all may feel to a larger or smaller extent. Because even if you look at so called simple organisms like worms, they're vastly more complex than anything we've ever attempted to model or to simulate in any sort of computer simulation. It's vast and untapped complexity. And if, as many people believe, consciousness arises out of highly complex interaction, then they too would feel like something. Now, they wouldn't necessarily have a psychology, they wouldn't feel fat, or they wouldn't have regrets or something like that. That's associated with very complex brains like our brains, but they may well feel like something. And when they're not there anymore, and when that animal, that little worm is destroyed or dies, it doesn't feel like anything anymore. So in that sense, it may well feel like something to be a worm. The
2: only
1: trouble is that at least in mammals, in in ourselves, brains are very expensive, 20% of the energy that we use up. And so it
4: must be very important to have evolved in this way. What is consciousness for? It may not necessarily that evolution directly selects for high consciousness. It may select for adaptive behavior, And if adaptive behavior gives rise to complex brains, and if complex brains give rise to consciousness, then it would be indirectly selected for like, nobody argues that evolution selected us for being ballet dancer or for being, you know, differential topologist or stock market brokers. Yet here we are doing all those things, right? Those are evolutionary spandrels is a term in evolutionary theory that evolved indirectly. It is true that as you look at over the last several billion years of evolution, Organisms in general and brains have gotten vastly more complex, and I think that goes hand in hand with an enhanced consciousness without consciousness being necessarily directly selected for.
1: Christoph Koch speaking there with the Robin Williams for RN's The Science Show will put a link to the full conversation on the God Forbid website. He's the chief scientist of the Mind Scope program at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle. Well, that's an important point he makes, Reverend Dr. Andrew Sloan. It may just be that consciousness is an accident of evolution. Yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't say
2: accident. There are some Christians who don't think this. I think they're a bit odd, but that's all right. I'm of the view that the way God brought complex beings such as us into existence was through evolutionary processes. Whether that was, um, how can I put this, directly directed, Sorry, that's a bit ugly, but that'll do. Um, or not, I don't think it matters. Um, but to see it as purely accident, I, I would just dispute. It seems to me that the kind of being God is, is one who uh, delights in their beings that can experience God and that can benefit from that relationship. And it seems to me that um, that is kind of the point to it.
1: But perhaps it was an accident within the context of the miracle of creation. So we'll put the question of God's existence aside for a moment. And maybe, Rachel Brown, it could have been an accident, such as it was suggested by Christoph Koch?
0: I mean, I suppose it could have in the sense that, you know, anything arising in evolution is in some sense an accident. But I guess the real question we have to ask is, once something has appeared, why does it persist? So, yeah, it might have arisen because you reach a certain level of complexity and you get it for free. But then the question is, why did it persist, especially because it looks like it does valuable things for us? It would be bizarre to say that it continues to persist because it's just some kind of epiphenomenal thing. It looks like consciousness plays an important role in various types of problem solving, in various types of learning. The reason that we still have it and the reason that organisms with it do well, um, that isn't about accident. That's about it. It playing an important role in our lives and in our life histories.
1: Is there any example in evolutionary history of a species losing consciousness?
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, the fossil record does not uh, preserve consciousness in the way that we might like. So, I think I think that's <laughs> a that's a quite loaded question.
1: Now, humans and chimpanzees we share an ape evolutionary ancestor, but the gap is big. You know, chimps live in trees and we fly to the moon. But, Rachel, you say that gap would seem a lot smaller if we could see all the humanoid species that came between us over millions of years but are now extinct. Explain that.
0: So if we think about kind of our last common ancestor with chimps, so this is the species that existed before the two branches of the tree of life the one branch that chimps are on and the branch that we are on when they came apart, and that's six to eight million years ago. But Homo sapiens are only 200,000 years old. And in fact, behaviourally modern humans are 50,000 years old. And so in that intervening six million years, there were other species. So everyone has heard of Neanderthals, but there's Homo erectus. There's also um, the Australopithecines. So these were uh, bipedal terrestrial species uh, that lived between 4.2 and 2 million years ago. So uh, on that branch of the tree of life that we were on, that broke away from the branch that chimps are on, there were lots of other species that existed uh, between us and chimps and on that last common ancestor. Now, Um, You might think when we look at the tree of life now, there looks to be a big gap between us and other species. But imagine if all of those intermediaries still existed, if they hadn't gone extinct. Our Mm. direct ancestors and our cousins, it would be, it would make, that gap would be, uh, it's an illusion. It's an illusion that is a product of just evolutionary chance um, rather than some specialness about us so there are other parts of the tree of life where we see gaps for the same reason but we also see other parts where that's very very bushy where you see all the cousins represented so you know you google ladybugs you'll see like a absolute plethora of ladybugs there's no gaps there um now that's That's not because that's why bugs
1: are not up themselves
0: it's just yeah, there's no there's no gap there, but that's just a foible of the evolutionary of our evolutionary history that there happens to be a gap between us um and our closest kind of primate relatives.
1: so Reverend Dr. Andrew Sloan, are you confronted by Rachel Brown saying effectively we are glorified apes?
0: Uh,
2: no, not at all
1: um, I think I mean, that... do you agree with her well.
2: I think that's probably the story. I think that's how we came into existence. I would argue that word glorified is is not an insignificant one. Um, But what glorifies us is not necessarily some intrinsic property about us. It's the kind of relationship uh, that God enters into with us. It's primarily how God sees us and how God relates to us. Now, it's not that God doesn't care twopence about uh, other creatures. Of course, God does uh, uh, very much, I think. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that in Scripture. But um, the way in which God interacts with other creatures seems to be different. Uh, and it's the that character of interaction, I think, which is the primary thing that sets us apart, not where we happen to be on um, an evolutionary tree. Rachel
1: Brown, what do you say to that?
0: So I think, I think that's a very interesting kind of perspective. I guess for me then the question is sort of does that mean that the specialness of humanity in the sense that we have this kind of special relation with God, that becomes an evolutionary accident? So it's just a consequence. It just falls out of us being a certain type of uh, entity or a certain type of organism. And so it could just as much have been some other type of organism on some other part of the tree of life as long as they had the right types of properties. Is that the kind of view that you have, Andrew? Um,
2: look, I mean, that's uh, – I actually would not have a problem um, with the notion that that we just happen to find ourselves in this place. That seems entirely plausible to me, that there could have been a different evolutionary story and different beings uh, could be the ones that were in relationship with God. I, I don't know, and I don't know how we could possibly know Um, Whether there's um, non-human intelligence elsewhere in the universe, if there were, um, then I would think that God is also in a relationship with those
1: beings which, and I presume that their evolutionary story would be radically different to ours. But why the universe? Why not just stick with octopuses? Because we're always looking at animals and wondering, testing if they have the skills down. I wonder if that animal species can use tools or language or logic. But what a fascinating question to look up. I wonder if that animal has the capacity of transcendence. I've never even thought about it, Rachel.
0: So in terms of octopuses, octopuses are a very weird kind of case, actually. And in fact, uh, some philosophers have said that they are the closest to a kind of independent experiment about the evolution of intelligence as we're going to get because they're very, very distant from us evolutionarily. So oh, the last common ancestor with octopuses would be a very long time ago um, because they're, they're basically kind of mollusks. And so they provide us with kind of this independent picture on how you get intelligence, how it could be different to how it is in vertebrates and in mammals. A completely they can use, different brain to ours, like from another planet. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, so their brains have, to the extent that a brain could be. So if we think about very old, some of the parts of the brain uh, that we share, sort of features that we share, are very, very old. So, for example, they have neurons and we have neurons. Whereas we could imagine a alien that didn't have neurons had something different. But uh, at least insofar as you take those basic building blocks, their brains are distributed. so they have small bits of, of neural architecture in each limb. Uh, it looks like the, the limbs have their some- brains. Yep, and their arms seem to have some degree of independence. So there were reports, for example, of one arm sort of moving in one direction and another moving in another. Their sort of central brain appears to play more of a coordination role between the other brains, but a lot of the cognition is happening in the arms. And so they're a very different case to ours. In that sense, though, they do start to push on this question about, well, what's required for consciousness? Because they have a very complicated uh, cognitive architecture, but also it's less integrated than our cognitive architecture. So if we think that integration is the key to consciousness, then we might say that that's a reason to think they don't have consciousness. Uh, They also have a very different body to ours, so it makes it really hard for us to do some of the tests we'd like to do. So, for example, puzzle boxes and things like that. Octopuses can often um, just rip them apart um, rather than try and solve the puzzle. They can get through very, very small spaces. They can do all sorts of things that we can't do, which make it look like maybe they're doing something complicated, but perhaps we can explain with quite simple cognition. So they're a really tricky case, um, it's very tricky. Because they challenge our ideas about consciousness in so many ways.
1: And then maths comes into it, Reverend Sloan, and I don't mean to be rude, but if that octopus has eight consciousnesses with its eight limbs, that means there's eight Adam and Eves, which is 16 people.
2: <laughs> um,
1: I, I guess it,
2: it depends on what you mean by a self. I, I should think that if octopuses are... Complex enough, and if they have some kind of consciousness, then the the what it's like to be an octopus is so radically different to what it's like to be a human that I I don't know that we could imagine what it's like. I don't think that would stop uh, God relating to them appropriately. I I think we're we're clearly called to love non-human creatures, and I think the kind of love that's appropriate depends on the kind of being it is, and so the better we understand what kind of being it is, then the better we might be able to figure out how best to love that being. And that might change quite radically in light of new information. So behaviors which in the past we might have thought were appropriate, we might now consider wildly inappropriate just because we have a better understanding of the world. And One of the reasons that as a Christian, I'm profoundly in favor of good, careful scientific research is the The more we understand the world, the more we can understand how best to responsibly interact with it.
1: Well, on this question, Rachel Brown, does the science show that an animal can be moral?
0: Well, that's a good question. So, and I think there are some animals where there are organisms which have some kind of moral sense, but nonetheless, we might not want to hold them morally accountable And I think there are some animals uh, that fall into that kind of category. So, for example, there's some nice studies on uh, monkeys where uh, they look at whether monkeys have a concept of fairness. So, uh, Franz Duval, a a famous primatologist, he does these experiments. A number of your listeners have probably seen these videos of um, where one of the monkeys in the experimental setup performs a task and is given a grape, which is the high value reward. And the other monkey that they can see is given a, a cucumber. Now the monkey that's given the cucumber gets outraged, or at least looks like they're outraged. They end up throwing the cucumber at the attendant because it's the low value reward. Um, and indeed what they have seen is that even the monkey that is getting the grapes for their behaviour has an issue with the fact that the other one isn't getting a fair reward. So it looks like in this circumstance that the two monkeys have some concept or some awareness of the idea of fairness, of equal goods for equal activity. And so it looks like we might want to say that some non-human animals have at least some proportion of a moral sense or at least the type of cognition required for morality. And then there's questions about how we would want to to treat them on the basis of that.
1: Well, this is an interesting question. And on the other side of the equation, if humans become more like robots, what happens then? We're looking at transhumanism next. On our end, it is God forbid, we are with Dr Rachel Brown, Director of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Also, Reverend Dr Andrew Sloan, Director of Postgraduate Studies at Moreland College. Is it possible to surpass our own human limitations? What would that even entail? Bionic limbs living far longer, being able to upload our consciousness to a computer? Transhumanists believe this is all possible for us to evolve beyond our current physical, intellectual, even psychological capacities, thanks to science and technology. It's less about healing or repairing our body, more about enhancing it as a species. Dr. Dennis Alexander is a renowned molecular biologist. He's director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at Cambridge University. And he spoke to RN's Andrew West about the ethics of medical technology and transhumanism.
5: Medical technology moves very fast. And right now, there's a lot of technology to put brain plants in people. For example, epileptic patients, there's now... The possibility of having electrodes implanted that will damp down the seizure as soon as it shows a sign of even getting going and so forth so i think what happens is that the medical technology drives technological advance in terms of manipulating humans but then as we go along people say oh well that's quite interesting maybe we could use that for something else so i think the sky fi scenarios is not very realistic at the moment but on the other hand i think There are some very rapidly developing technologies that will gradually enable us to gain more control over people it's not realistic at the moment dennis but in your own writing you point out that it is an aspiration for a certain class of scientists uh, maybe scientific dreamers and that holds some major ethical problems doesn't it that's right i think it's really the transhumanists who are pushing hardest on the technical transformation of humans and of course they envisage a future in which we won't be living in this failing biology but uh, they envisage down the line sometime in fact one has predicted 2000, the year 2045 when there will be the singularity where we will be transferred out of these failing human bodies into digital machines that will then be more intelligent than us and be able to continue their existence in what's sometimes called the great singularity. So they are very visionary, the transhumanists. I don't think there are so many transhumanists within the scientific community. It's hard to know, obviously. I haven't seen any sociological data on that. But there is a a fringe, uh, very vocal group, uh, who either within the scientific community or their writers, thinkers, filmmakers, and so on, who, who dream dreams about this very technologically based type of human future. And what is the biggest ethical challenge, certainly to people of faith, but to humanity generally to come out of this transhumanist dream or possibly nightmare? Of course, I think it depends what worldview one has on this. And I, as a Christian, see certain values which are really important in developing these sorts of ideas. I think if they're developed in terms of healing, then that's fine. After all, Jesus was the great healer and a great inspiration for medicine and for hospitals around the world in Christian thinking ever since. So that's fine. But then I think we come to the whole question of enhancement And exactly how far are we going to go with that? Mm. And I think in terms of the whole of humanity, you know, what we feel like as humans is that our relationships are really important, that being able to help one another is really important, that we have free will, moral responsibility in ways that give us value because then what we decide makes a real difference and so on. So it's this relational aspect that I think is very much missing from the transhumanist dream.
1: And that's molecular biologist Dennis Alexander speaking with RN's Andrew West for the Religion and Ethics Report. We'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Do you think he's right, Andrew Sloan? Uh,
2: Basically, yeah. One of the things that interests me about um, transhumanism is that it tends to assume that we know the things that we ought to value and how those values ought to be embodied or disembodied in some future human 2.0. 2.0. I have deep reservations about that, in part because of the way in which I see the world around me and the kinds of things that are valued and the kinds of things that are undervalued or devalued, uh, and what that does to humans and humans of particular kinds. And it strikes me as not unimportant to think about the kind of people who tend to be the most vocal advocates of transhumanist programs. Uh, they tend to be people who, at the moment, are the leading beneficiaries of our current technologies and our current economic arrangements. Um, that I think, the wealthy. Wants to raise some suspicions. not just the monetarily wealthy, but those who have intellectual capital, um those who have access to technological systems, and the kinds of futures that they tend to imagine are the kinds of futures in which the things that they value are, Are present and things that they don't value, but I think a lot of other people would, um, are either ignored or written out of the system. Rachel
1: Brown, how would you like to see this world emerge?
0: So, I, I think I'm in agreement largely actually with Andrew. I'm not bothered by the idea of technology being integrated within people that I think, is something that really is just a natural progression of of the use of tools and technology that's been going on for you know, some thousands of years. What is important when we're looking at these technologies is questions of justice and fairness. Technological change is moving very rapidly. Regulation tends to lag behind um, invention. And so, there is a risk there that the values and goals of a small subset of of people will end up being um, perpetuated without any discussion of the broader community, particularly of people um, in poverty and in uh, situations where they're not in places of privilege.
1: But what about when the technology rubs up against what it means to be conscious and what it means to be human?
0: What do I think there? I think that, in fact, you know, our... Our minds are already um, deeply connected with our technology in a way that you know perhaps we don't realise. So, just think about tool use. When we when we use a tool and when we learn to use tools, that changes our brain. We, we, our brain gets wired in a certain way to understand, to, to use those things. And not only that, but our brains have evolved particular kinds of adaptations which are suited to those things. And then when you start to look at more modern technologies, for example, something like your smartphone. You know, when I, my smartphone, for example, um, I no longer remember phone numbers, my smartphone uh, carries all those things. I don't remember them anymore. I've offloaded that task onto my smartphone, and in some sense, it's it's become an extended part of my mind. Um, and there's lots of other elements of my environment that are like that. And I don't think that's fundamentally changed my identity. I think that's enhanced my capacity in the world. Uh, now there's this question about uh, equality of access, but in terms of Our cognition and thinking about consciousness, I think they seem concerning because I think we don't realise the extent to which we are already extremely intertwined with our technology. Our cognition is already um, shaped by technology. And so that will continue, doesn't scare me so much as perhaps make me optimistic for the future, for the things that we could achieve with it, if we're careful enough to make sure that we're concerned about justice and equity.
1: Mm. Andrew Sloan, your response?
2: Um, look, absolutely. Uh, it's important for us to recognise the ways in which culture, technology, our environment all shape the kinds of beings that we are. Um,
1: it's, but this uh, thing about these... technology being just scary, like the pen, was a, our fingers instinctively grip a pen, not because we were created to be pen grippers, but because the technology emerged and now we do it without thinking.
2: Yeah. Uh, and look, there's, um, uh, I think it's, oh, I can't remember which of the dialogues it is, um, but there's this um, fascinating thing where this new technology is seen as being corrupting of the youth and destroying all possible knowledge. Uh, and the technology that's being uh, spoken of is writing and the writing of argument <laughs> rather than the memory of it.
1: Um, fascinating. But Rachel, doesn't technology pose more of a serious threat than technologies of the past? I mean, we isn't there a, the, the potential that some humans could be transformed to make them so different to others that there would be d- different categories of of humans, you know, one superhuman and the other not, and that would have all sorts of ethical implications.
0: I think that's true. I mean, I, I guess the ultimate um, question then is whether or not that's a a necessary result of such technologies. Is it a necessary consequence that if we go down this path we end up having that kind of inequity or is there a way to avoid that so we can have the cake and eat it too do we have to um, can we can we have the trans, the, the benefits of transhumanism with uh, while avoiding those costs now it may be that within the sorts of society that we live in within kind of a capitalist sort of situa- capitalist liberal sort of society that that's not possible maybe maybe that's true um, I think that, that, is it, that that's a reasonable um, card to have on the table. Um, but maybe there are ways around it. I think what's more important is at this current point in time, when we haven't got the technologies yet, this is when we should be thinking about them. Because historically, regulation has always kind of followed the technologies rather than come before. And it seems like in this situation, um, maybe more so than in other situations, we need to be on the front step when it comes to thinking about the implications of what people are doing.
1: Maybe, but let's do the quiz first, which is up (laughs) next on God Forbid. Wits end. Yes, it's Wits end, the God Forbid quiz. And as always, we begin with the buzzers. The Reverend Dr Andrew Sloan, who has one question on his mind, test your buzzer.
5: How many of you are conscious?
1: Hmm. And Dr. Rachel Brown, who finds meaning in the observable universe only. Test your buzzer.
3: God is a superstition.
1: Okay, buzzers are working. <laughs> there, there is enough DNA in the average human body to stretch from here to A, the living room, B, Europe, C, Jupiter, or D, Pluto and back, more than 17 times.
3: God is a superstition. D.
1: Uh, Quite right. Pluto and back 17 times. It's a lot of DNA. Next question. True or false? Babies have 100 more bones than adults. How many of you are conscious? False. Incorrect. Yeah, babies have around 300 bones with the cartilage between them, apparently, when they are born to help them to get through the birth canal, which is rather unnecessary because you can have a caesar. Uh, question. Research from Google and Amazon shows that overwhelmingly people prefer to listen to women's voices or men's voices on their um, artificial intelligence home assistants. Women's, I'm going I think.
0: woman.
1: You're both correct. Women's voices. Don't know why, um, but that's correct. The research, uh, you know, says women's voices. Correct. Question: What is the name of this of this new terrifying artificial intelligence software which replaces the face of a person in an existing video with the face of a person from any other video? So you can have a video of Putin and you put Trump in the video or whatever you want is it called a face off b deep fake c instagram's face swap filter or d potentially the beginning of world war three b B. uh yeah both correct coming in uh with deep fake and you can google it or youtube it or fax it and you'll be able to see it on the uh, on the internet just how scary it is Uh, Question, in 2006, the then Israeli Prime Minister, Ariel Sharon, became unconscious after a debilitating stroke. The unkind WAG comedians at The Chaser did report that he recovered slightly when they said he regained the ability to do what? Mm. No guesses?
0: No, I don't know that one.
1: Nope. They said he'd indicated some signs of recovering from the stroke when he regained the ability to blame everything on the Palestinians. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Next question. Have a listen to this audio which went viral last week.
3: The United States
1: is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, We're lower than the world. Lower than the world? Lower than Europe.
2: In what? In what? Take a look. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of
1: population. That's where the US is really bad. Much worse than South Korea, Germany, et cetera. You
3: can't can't do that.
1: Name the two men and also the dad of one of the two men.
0: God is a superstition. It's uh, Jonathan Swan uh, and uh, Trump, Donald Trump. And Norman Swan is the father.
1: Correct. We're we're very uh, proud people at Radio National, I can tell you. Uh, Dr. Norman Swan and his son, Jonathan Swan, interviewing President Trump, the chip off the old block, kicking goals as a journo in America. Uh, What about their argument, though? Um, uh, President Trump saying America is a good place to get the virus because the numbers show that your recovery rate in America is better than other countries. You're out on top. But then Jonathan Swan's point was, well, that's only just as well because America's got heaps of infections. Was that their dispute in a nutshell, Rachel?
0: Yes, that was the dispute in a (laughs) nutshell. Uh, Yes, no, I I think I'd just prefer to be uh, here in uh, Canberra with uh, no cases uh, and uh, no risk. Thank you. Relatively no risk.
1: Have you factored yeah. in the possibility of fake news, though, in the Canberra Times?
0: Oh, that's a worry, but I'm pretty sure we're probably safe here in Canberra,
1: alas. I think the Canberra uh, Times is a very good newspaper, by the pretty... way. I, I, sh- I should withdraw that accusation. I grew up in Canberra and it's a great city. I do hey, love it. Yeah. Hey, Woden. Um, good on you, Rachel. That's the end of the show. I've really enjoyed it. Andrew, too. I've had a ball. Thank you both. Thank you, You're Jan. welcome. It's been a good two part of it. Rachel Brown is Director of the Centre for Philosophy of the Sciences at the Australian National University. Thanks again, Rachel. Let's have you on again soon, huh?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you for having me.
1: And Andrew Sloan, Director of Postgraduate Studies at Morling College. Thank you again, Andrew.
2: You're most welcome.
1: And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast on the ABC Listen app. Email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. It's God Forbid.